Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best results mixing, recording, and mastering your music, not necessarily in that order. Joining me again this week is John Tidy from reaperblog.net. That's because John has very kindly agreed to be my regular co-host for the show. If you've been listening to them in order, you'll know he's been in on the last few shows with me, and he's been mixing and editing the show for some time and I really enjoy having somebody else to bounce ideas off. John is a great guy, he has a ton of knowledge, he has a great perspective on things. Um, We've had great reaction to people listening to his contributions. So John, welcome officially to the show. Thank you very much. I'm definitely here until a, a, a newer, younger model arrives. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll use you up, bleed you dry and then cast you aside. Um, just like I know Steve left of his own accord. That's not <laughs> anyway. Um, OK, so this week the topic is how to master an album. And if you kind of had a mental record scratch at that point and thought, hang on, you've been talking about how to master stuff for 22 episodes already. Um, <laughs> that's absolutely true. But what we, we haven't talked about is how to master a group of songs for say an EP or a compilation or a playlist or an album. And I've had several people ask me that question. I thought it was a great idea for a topic for a show. But for me, this is where mastering, uh, the, the point of mastering really. In fact, I don't accept single song mastering projects anymore from new clients. Um, just because it's not as satisfying, it's much harder. If you're just mastering a single song, it kind of floats in this little bubble in its space and it kind of it could almost sound like anything uh for me mastering only really starts to make sense when you have a context for whatever it is you're working on and i mean of course you have the kind of context of the wider world you know all the other songs that are out there but there's so much variety amongst those that um it's it's completely possible to master single songs but i just don't find it that satisfying and what's really interesting is is what happens when you balance different songs against each other to to make a cohesive sequence. And it's kind of a shame that people tend not to listen to music that way these days. You know, the the days of putting a, a piece of vinyl on and sitting down to listening to side A and then flipping it over and listening to side B are long gone, sadly. But, um, well, I say that. I mean, do you listen to albums still, John? I do. I'm not just listening to albums. I'm usually working on stuff at the same time, writing blog posts or mm-hmm. you know, preparing for a video or something like that. But no, I, I'll, I'll listen to a few albums every day straight to, you know, straight through. I, I don't like putting it on shuffle and I don't like, uh, you know, picking one or two songs and, you know, out of a, a single album. I'll listen to the whole thing almost always. Yeah. I'm the same. That's good to hear. In fact, it'd be interesting to know whether people, because I know that's not, the statistic I heard that was really scary is that the average length of time before a teenager these days skips to the next song is 25 seconds. I don't know what that's based on or whether that's true, but watching my own kids who are soon going to be teenagers, that seems about right. And that's really scary to me. So I'd be interested, anybody listening, how long, whether, whether you listen to albums or whether it's all in shuffle or it's all playlists. I mean, I think what's interesting is that I feel like songs still work better, even if you listen to them in shuffle or a playlist, if they were mastered in the context of an original album. And just to have a really brief tangent, I mean, we've talked a lot about the loudness management that's happening these days on online playback platforms. Something that really bugs me about Spotify is the fact that it doesn't have an album mode. So if you put on an album and shuffle it, um, or just listen to it straight through, in fact, because Spotify has loudness management on by default, all of those songs get their levels tweaked ever so slightly by the algorithms as though they were part of a playlist or a thing. And for me, that can actually quite severely mess up the flow of an album. Um, you know, quieter songs get lifted up a little bit and really loud songs might get pulled back. Whereas Apple Soundcheck has uh, album mode where if all the songs you're playing are from a single album, it will keep the relative balance of those songs to each other intact, um, which is a much better better way of doing it. And it's another thing that I hope Spotify will introduce in future. Anyway. That's something I ran into when I was burning CDs back in the day, where uh, 
if you accidentally had normalize on, you might get one track that's sort of a, an interlude, intermission, and it's supposed to be quiet. It's it's just like a, a sort of ambient thing between tracks. But if that becomes as loud as the rest of the album, it makes no sense. So, uh, so is that kind of what you're talking about there, or is it more subtle than that? It's not adding well, 15 no, dB of gain. It's or, exactly. Okay. <laughs> well, okay, so it is exactly that effect. But okay. it is, I would say it's more subtle. Most albums don't have that kind of variety um, in them. So for me, it's more just about a kind of, a, well, it's odd. I mean, it's kind of a bit like a sort of similar to the effect of overcompression. You know, it's, well, we're going to talk about this in a minute. That if you, for me, when you're mastering, let's say it's, um, you know, sort of straight ahead kind of acoustic rock, chances are not every song is this kind of, full ahead driving thing there's going to be some ballads in there um and there's could well be you know something for acoustic guitar and voice or piano and voice or something you know much gentler and more uh, lyrical say and yeah absolutely something like spotify will lift up the level of those quieter songs maybe not right up so they're absolutely as loud as the loudest thing that's on there but it would also if there's one track that you kind of really push the level hard to get a real impact at the kind of high point of the album say that will probably also get eased back by a couple of dbs so even though the dynamics within the song are preserved as you intended the dynamics in comparison to each other so you know when that ballad comes in it kind of leaps out at you and sounds a bit louder it doesn't have that kind of intimacy and that kind of gentleness that it would have had if you'd heard it at the original slightly lower level and then when you get to that really big song it's it just doesn't hit you as hard as it was meant to when it was mixed and mastered um so yeah it's it's what that's exactly what you're talking about just kind of more extreme and it kind of leads in really nicely to the first point i was going to make the most basic point i would say about mastering an album this kind of almost sounds too simple to say and i've hinted at it before but you don't have the same settings for every song and it, it kind of sounds crazy to me but i know for a fact that people do this they will put say a limiter or some eq and compression on the master output fader of an album and think that it's mastered and that can work if everything was perfect prior to that and you had all the relative levels and eq settings balanced prior but in general if you apply the same blanket setting to every song on an album that's not mastering for me that's just kind of changing the overall sound a bit. Whereas for me, what mastering is, and well, for any mastering engineer, it's you have optimized settings for every song. So you might have separate EQ, separate compression settings. Uh, maybe one song you have some stereo width enhancement. Another one you have a little bit of gentle saturation. You might use some, some clipping on another song and not on others. And even if all of those individual moves on all of those different tracks are slightly different, the overall effect can be huge and that's what brings you know the songs together i mean just to kind of take a really simple example let's say you have a full-on rock track and an acoustic ballad chances are the acoustic ballad has been recorded with higher levels than the full-on rock track just because you can you know if you're going to optimize your gain at the the mic pre's when you're doing the recording probably the whole thing comes out sounding a little bit louder just in terms of the level um, than the rock track where you need more headroom because you've got pounding drums and, you know, kind of loads more aggressive stuff happening. You have to be much more careful with the levels there to avoid distortion. So when you get to the mastering stage, probably the most fundamental thing you can do is reduce the track of the quieter number down so that it feels right next to the full-on rock track. So yeah, that's my first point in this episode is just if you're mastering a group of songs, optimized settings for every track which I know is something you already do, John. Did you always do that? Or was there a point where you thought maybe mastering was just putting a limiter over the whole thing as well? I think I had figured it out uh, by the time I actually had albums worth of material to work on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just because out of necessity, right? Because otherwise yeah. it would have sounded bizarre and weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I think any time you reach for a, a template or a preset... When it comes to mastering, often it's just it sounds awful. Some of my earliest experience was with some of the early versions of Ozone and putting that on a single track and just finding like really 
odd imbalances because it's it's a preset that's not made for the song that I, I had written. I realized that I had needed to do optimized settings for every song. And when I had a, an album worth of material from other artists or, or a bunch of things that I had mixed from various sources, they, they needed their own settings and more than just limiting on the master to make them sound right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a really simple thing, but it's actually quite profound. It's one and it's one of those things that I think is worth saying, even if it kind of seems just too obvious. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And I think it can be helpful to make presets of things that have worked, but don't expect them to work every time, and know when to tweak, uh, and know which things you can tweak with it. Yeah, you could have various different kind of um, starting points for particular kinds of songs like because so that was going to be my, my next point is not only could you have different settings for different songs but you could have different processing for different songs so there might be uh you might find that you want a really clinical uh linear phase digitally cue for one song but for another one you want to try and get some analog flavor so you get something that kind of attempts to model um some kind of retro unit or uh you want the sound of uh you know a, F- a fair child limiter something with lots of tubes in it or that's what i was thinking um, yeah i mean there's there's a there's a ton of different flavors that you could bring to a song by having different processing and if you're lucky enough to have racks of outboard you might choose to put it out out physically through different pieces of gear um which is not to say like you say that you couldn't have uh, templates if you like starting points but yeah everything is going to have to be tweaked individually for the song and that's where the magic happens i mean it it always amazes me how um even tiny little things like just minute level changes like every so often an album will come along and you put it on you think wow this sounds amazing already i genuinely you know and i kind of say to the client actually this is this is good to go if if you're happy with this and almost always what happens when in that case is that they say to me well you know just here we are you know have a listen see if you think there's anything else you can do to make it better so you go and you think well maybe i could do half a db there and tiny little bit of this that and the other and you make all these and you know before you know it you spent four six hours working on it just as you always do and when you listen back to the whole sequence this the magic has happened suddenly it's way more than it ever was before just because of these tiny little adjustments and i think the kind of the opposite applies if you're listening on spotify where say those loudness changes are reduced um it kind of takes away from some of that magic and it's it's that kind of thing that i find really fascinating about the whole mastering process i've mentioned this a couple of times in interviews just recently but there was a song i mastered recently where i was just listening i was thinking yeah it's really good but i wish the snare just popped out a little bit more but that's a mix issue it's a shame i can't influence it and i carried on listening i thought well, let me just try it. And I went in with a really narrow little boost and found that the point where the, the body of the snare was singing out 200 hertz or something and literally added a couple of dBs and, you know, kind of went for the bypass thinking, well, that's not going to do anything. And it had exactly the effect that I'd been hoping for. It did just make seem to make the snare leap out that little bit more at you. It didn't have any bad effect on anything else in the mix. Um, so, yeah, it always astonishes me how much tiny little changes can make um and and how important that is for the mastering process i i do find it interesting how sometimes let's say early in the mix you need to make a, a 6 db change to hear a difference and at the end of the mix and you're doing mastering it's 0.3 db makes all the difference absolutely and level changes as well when you when you're mixing you kind of probably moving a fader less than 3 dbs is going to be almost pointless that's partly the layers of the onion kind of effect, you know, where you start off and it's like you have this scaggy thing with this gnarly skin on it and you, you peel a layer off and it looks way better, but it's still got some f- flaws. So you peel off another layer and the, and gradually the flaws get tinier and tinier and the thing looks more and more perfect. And you go too far and it's gone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> all you've got is kind of shrapnel all over the, <laughs> the table in front of you. Just demolished this song, picked it to pieces. Um, One little yeah, f- but, uh, the flawed other... analogy of the onion. <laughs> you can't take it too far. <laughs> and well, no, you can't take it too far with a song either, right? It's, well, yeah, then you start weeping, absolutely. 
<laughs> no, I think it applies perfectly. You, you go too far with this process and you, ha- you lose the essence of what you had originally. Actually, that, the, the analogy does hold up because absolutely, you peel too many layers off the onion. You do too much work on a song, too much polishing, and some of that raw magic of the rough mix could be gone. Um, the other interesting thing about just little changes, though, is I find is it's a pre- and post-compression thing. I tend to do most of my EQ pre-compression because I think it's important, as I've said way back in the compression episode, to have a balanced EQ hitting the dynamics processing, unless you're looking for some kind of creative effect. Um, Otherwise, you'll just get more stuff reacting to certain frequency ranges than others, which is probably not what you want. Sometimes I do a little bit of EQ after compression, and that's when suddenly, like before the compression, I might be boosting and cutting things by three, four, five, six dBs, sometimes maybe even more. Um, after compression, hardly ever more than half a dB or one dB. And I guess part of that is what we're already talking about in the sense that it's already very, very close to where it needs to be. So you don't want to mess it up by making too big a change. But also I think once things have been uh, compressed, have the, have the dynamics managed and you're right in that sweet spot, tiny little changes have a much bigger apparent effect on things than they do prior, partly because the compression isn't taking away from the the changes that you make. You know, if you big up, do a big boost at 60 hertz and you have a multiband compressor, the low end of that compressor is going to hold that frequency range back a bit, which is another interesting thing about using multiband compression. But also, once you have a source, once you're working on something that is more compressed uh, dynamically, I think the changes, that you, the subtle changes that you make have a bigger effect for me. You've come across that? I often find that the multiband compressor is pushing back on what I'm intending to do with the EQ at times. Um, I also want to ask you, um, maybe this is more benefit for the audience than for myself, um, but how much are you using a single band compressor in mastering versus multiband? Not that much. Actually, I use multiband compression a lot, but... I use it in a way that is as close to single band compression as I can make it. So I don't use millions of bands. Um, I have the same settings in every band, um, uh, gentle crossovers, and not too much gain reduction at any one point. So my goal is to make it sound as much like single band compression as I can, but with the benefits of multiband compression in that you can be more transparent and more invisible with it, basically. The other thing I would say about it is that I actually quite like the way that it pushes back against the EQ that you use. You can often use that in quite a creative way. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll end up on a whole other tangential topic if we carry on with this. So we need to definitely hold that thought and maybe return to it in the future. Um, but anybody who's interested, I do have a product called Mastering with Multiband Compression, which you can find on my website, um, which is amazingly good value and will tell you everything you need to know. Having said all of that, I tend to have a consistent set of tools that I use personally in mastering. I have uh, different plugins, different processes that do the things that I want them to and that I'm comfortable using. I think it's much better to really understand how to use a limited range of tools really well, personally, than to have a gazillion different things that you try until you find one that fits. I do swap out different EQs, but in terms of limiting and compression, I'm usually fairly consistent. And then it's for me, it's just about whether I have something extra for certain tracks, like maybe this one needs some mid-side processing or a little bit of saturation or a little bit of clipping or whatever that might be. But uh, certainly nobody should feel constrained, just like you can have different settings for every song, you can have different processing for every song as well. I don't want to go off on a tangent here. Uh, a simple yes or no will work. Do different digital EQs sound different? <laughs> no. Okay. And yes. Only if the designers intend them to. I mean, they do and they don't, right? There's a website somewhere where some guy has done an experiment where he manages to get a ton of different uh, EQs from different manufacturers that look very different on screen to all have exactly the same processing effect. But that doesn't mean that if you dial in 1 dB with a Q of 7 and this, that, and the other on a certain EQ, it will sound the same as every other EQ. They're all capable of achieving the same effect, but quite often the settings that you need to get to achieve that effect can be different, and that can make it feel different to use the EQ, even if the end results are identical. 
And then you have stuff where people are deliberately, say, modeling an analog process. Well, just in terms of digital EQ, you've got the difference between minimum phase, mixed phase, linear phase. And then there are kind of people like FabFilter have these kind of intelligent modes where it kind of changes. All of those mm -hmm. can have subtle influences on the sound. Um, but I mean, certainly in terms of the stock EQ that comes with your average DAW, I, I don't think there are meaningful differences between them. When you're choosing an EQ to use in a master, but choosing between two or three different ones for a particular song, it's really more about the features available mid-side or independent controls for left and right more than the actual sound of it. Is that what you're saying? Yes, up to a point. I'd say an exception to that rule is something like uh, my new favorite plugin. Uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it on this show before, is the the Nova EQ. It's amazing because it's free. Uh, so Tokyo Dawn Labs, I think it's is the... Tokyo Dawn Labs, that's the one, yeah. Um, that's different because it's a dynamic EQ, meaning that you can use it as a simple EQ, but you can also use it so that it will only apply the EQ setting when the sound crosses a certain threshold. So it's kind of a little bit like a multiband compressor, but the other way around, if you like. Um, that can be useful in some cases, maybe for sibilance, for example. I'll, I'll give that one a try. I'd, I've been putting it off. And uh, there is a, there's a free version and a gentleman's edition, which has a few extra features. Um, but I, I think it is very affordable, yeah. Yeah, I have the Gentleman's Edition um, just because I liked it so much. Um, the interface is a little bit quirky in WaveLab, but I find that with a few different plugins, so I think that's probably a WaveLab thing rather than necessarily to do with the plugin coding itself. The other thing that's interesting about it is that it's what they call a parallel EQ. So rather than um, applying, say, a parametric boost to the signal that you put in, it splits the EQ into two separate paths and then it applies a bandpass filter to one of those paths so that the let's say you're boosting 2k it gets rid of everything apart from that 2k area with the width of the Q that you define and then when you push the gain up it's lifting up that parallel bandpass path now I don't know enough about how it works to know why that sounds different from a straightforward EQ but it does. Somebody suggested that possibly there's a little bit of saturation going on in the parallel path. The thing that I like about it is it, I find it enables me, particularly in the high end, to lift out the high frequencies more with less of that kind of spiky quality coming through um, that you often get if you put large EQ boosts in with a digital EQ. Um, so that's an example of a, a different kind of process that where it doesn't sound the same as every other EQ. Um, and that's so I might choose it for that reason if I want to do that kind of processing or if I need the dynamic processing. I like the FabFilter EQ a lot, mainly because the interface is really nice. It's really easy to switch between mid-side processing. I have to try the DGM EQ because people keep talking to me about that and I haven't tried it yet. One interesting example is of what I'm saying about in terms of it's, it's the choice of the people who design the EQs because if you look at the Ozone EQ, in its default mode, it makes no sense to me. I, I kind of dialed some settings in and, and I'm like, well, it's not doing anything. I have to switch it to, I think they call it clinical linear phase mode or something. And then suddenly it starts behaving as I expect it to behave based on the, the EQs that I've used in the past. And I think it's worth saying it's not, you can't discount the contribution that just familiarity and ease of use make to all of these things. Even if something sounds identical to something else, if you particularly relate to the interface or the way this works or whatever, then, uh, that can be a reason to choose one over another, even if the, the sound is not that different. So, yeah, simple digital EQs all sound the same, but especially these days, there are actually a ton of different options that can be valid choices, even given that fact. Does that answer the question? And then some. All right. Cool. I'm sorry, that wasn't a yes or a no. <laughs> but you oh, see we why. got that tangent done in less than five minutes i'm sure it's good that's cool okay okay moving on so yeah moving on so, so we have separate settings for every song on the album including eq and compression uh and maybe a raft of other things 
The question is, how do you balance them? And that was one of the key questions that people were asking me, wanted me to do this episode. One answer is using a loudness meter. I'll talk about that more in a second. Another one is just by ear. One great rule of thumb is to listen to the vocals. And if there isn't a vocal, listen to the lead instrument. If you can get consistency in the levels of the lead vocals through an album, the backings can do almost anything around them and it will still sound right. It's something I learned from doing a ton of compilation albums where you might have material from maybe two decades, you know, from maybe as many stu different studios, as many different engineers. Uh, that's one of the most challenging and one of the most enjoyable mastering jobs you can get. And it's most challenging because of figuring out how to balance what could be wildly different songs. The same thing applies if you're mastering stuff in different genres or, um, you know, lots of different styles. Pin yourself onto the lead vocal and you're going to be in good shape. In terms of loudness, it's not about getting the same loudness for every song. I think the key is to aim for the same maximum loudness for each song if it's emotionally appropriate. So you know, just to take a kind of... A lot of people ask me whether I master things with different loudness profiles, different dynamic profiles based on the genre. You know, is EDM much louder than progressive rock, say? And the answer is no. I mean, there are people who, who say it should be different, but my personal opinion is the loud bits of an EDM track should be of a similar loudness to the loudest bits of a progressive rock track. The difference between them is that the progressive rock track has a load more variety in it, probably, than a straight ahead kind of dance floor song. And that means that they look very different dynamically, even though the maximum levels are similar. Um, and I apply that all, all the way through. So, uh, you know, if I'm mastering a folk album, I make the loudest bits. You know, we've talked before about how I always have the same mastering level. So the loudest bits are as loud as feel right to me emotionally and look right on the meters um, and that helps in terms of balancing you know quiet ballads with full-on tunes on an album or whatever it's it's quite a simple suggestion but it's a really powerful strategy um, I did say several times there though depending on the emotional context and that's important if you have you know a gentle acoustic ballad where somebody is singing really softly that needs to feel appropriate in terms of so it's again it's balance not match which is a real theme for me it's you're not kind of trying to make all the sounds sound the same or the same loudness or the same eq or anything else it's about getting the right balance between them so that when that quiet number ends and you get hit with the the straight ahead rock tune it has the right impact but it doesn't kind of it's not uncomfortable to listen to and it doesn't blast you out of your seat um and the same thing applies with eq it's a question of not giving everything the same EQ profile. You know, it makes no sense for a solo acoustic with vocal to have the same EQ profile as a full arrangement with bass, drums, guitar, keyboards, vocals, the lot. Um, what you want is for those two to balance each other and to sit happily together. And I kind of, just to give you a simple example of why that might not work, is let's say you've got your rock tune perfect and then you put the acoustic song on lots of times when you record an acoustic guitar it sounds a bit boomy because i mean it's a it's a resonant instrument you've probably got the mic somewhere it's quite hard to get a really even frequency balance if it is booming out like that it makes it much harder to balance the level and everything else until you've addressed that little imbalance in the eq once that's resolved suddenly everything starts falling into place nicely so does that make sense it does, and I've been in that situation where there's a like a, a really simple arrangement for one of the songs, just like one or two acoustic guitars and a vocal, and it's up against, or it's it's bookended by regular rock songs, and uh, sometimes you have to cut the bass in that song, or sometimes you have to add some bass. It's about balance rather than being equal. Yeah, absolutely. I do feel like I'm cheating a little bit. These days, uh, using loudness normalization immediately after I drop in my files for the master, doing something like, I think, minus 23 is my starting point, and then it's plus or minus like 1 dB on each track. And I'll change the normalization amount based on 
what things are on in Dynameter or in VUMT as my starting point before any processing. I'll... I mean, yeah, I don't think that's cheating. I mean, I the the first thing that I do, that's something I didn't mention at the beginning of the process. The first thing I do is I put the first song on and I adjust the level till it's about the right level. Um, I don't do that using an automated process, but there's no reason not to particularly. Um, and then well, you fine tune it. <laughs> <laughs> because it, because honestly, it, it, it saves me 25 minutes <laughs> just by hitting, hitting two buttons. Yeah, well, I guess uh, maybe and, and you're not... cheating yourself out of the opportunity to learn that skill. Um, you know, I mean, figuring out no, what the relative it. loudness of those songs is is part of the skill. But if you're providing you're fine-tuning it, providing you're not relying on that and kind of taking it as the final arbiter, you know, you're still making mm -hmm. those. It's just you're getting in the right ballpark quicker. Um Having said that, it doesn't take long to, to push a fader up. But it, do you make an interesting point about the adjustments of one or two dBs? Because here's a, a little ninja trick for people listening. The You do want a quieter song, a kind of, you know, performance and emotion-wise to be quieter than a full-on rock song, but you probably don't want it to be realistically quieter, meaning, you know, actually the sound of a full rock band next to somebody playing an acoustic guitar and singing is an enormous difference. If you try to replicate that on a CD or in a recording, it's just not going to work. So actually what tends to happen is the quiet songs are much, much louder and are almost as loud as the loudest songs. They're just quiet enough to make you feel that they're quiet and to feel right, even though they're much more louder mm -hmm. than they would be realistically. And even, I mean, even sort of in an unrealistic way, I think it's surprising how little variation you need to get that to get the right impression because the other thing is because they're less full on arrangements they're probably also intrinsically more dynamic um so that kind of works to your advantage as well so yeah that's a that's a little interesting snippet perhaps it leads on to another question which is do i use automation um because i was definitely going to ask you about that yeah even if you um follow my the rules of thumb i've just suggested of listening to the vocal levels and making the loudest sections the same level well, particularly that second one, you could quite easily end up with a situation where the loud bits of the song are working perfectly, but then either maybe the intro to one song is too low or actually it's too loud if you've already got quite a bit of compression in there. Let's say you've got a quiet intro following a quiet song. If there's more compression being used in the, in the, the song with the quiet intro, that quiet intro could sound quite a lot louder than the quiet song that went just before it, which isn't going to feel right. So you turn that song down so that the quiet intro matches the quiet song that went before it, and then the end doesn't get loud enough. Um, that's a classic case for using some automation. to. So you set the levels by the loudest section, and then you reduce the quiet section so that it feels right within the context of the song and within the context of everything else. Um, or you could turn up the quiet song maybe, but you, you know, that's, that's the balancing act. That's where the, the, the judgment calls come in. The other kind of really common scenario is you have everything set up so that the dynamics processing you've chosen sounds right in the verse, but then when you get to the chorus, everything's working too hard. Um, and the nice trick there, I think I might've mentioned this in the compression episode is you can just ease back the level for the chorus the kind of the counterintuitive thing is it won't necessarily actually sound any quieter because when the level going in was higher, everything was working harder, everything was being pulled back more, you've got something that doesn't sound that much louder, it just sounds more squashed. By easing back that input level and finding the perfect balancing point, you get something that sounds just as loud as it did when it was being pushed harder, but it sounds better because it's got more space and more movement and more dynamics in it. So you kind of have this automation curve where the maybe the verses are louder going into all the processing and then the choruses are quieter, um, that kind of stuff can work. So I wouldn't say I do that on every song by any means. That would be either um, automating the track volume or the item volume or the threshold of the compressor. Yes, I think you need to be careful automating yeah. the threshold of the compressor because if the compressor has auto gain, it could get confusing. So I would, I personally like to leave the settings of the compressor as is and then somehow automate what's going in. And that could be... It could be fader automation if the fader is pre-insert, yeah. um, or it could be. I like to use, you know, to, to kind of use the, the the envelope stuff that you can, you know, you can double click and get a node and 
move things around but that's different in every piece of software so exactly how you do it is gonna i mean another way you can do it is just by edits um and, and clip volume changes uh you know providing you make sure the edit is smooth in different different projects different days i've done all of these techniques uh for the same result just whatever you feel like on that day whatever is more convenient for you but i've definitely done that also with uh, automation i've done um there was a noisy fade out on one of the tracks and i automated a low pass filter on the final trail out of the song so it got rid of all the hiss um i think that was on top of using some rx mm-hmm. on it yeah i mean it's um, automating but yeah that, that works perfectly yeah, automating eq is also a kind of an i mean i think that's that's, that's an interesting point the question is whether if you're having to automate the eq of a song whether actually you should be thinking about going back to the mix or talking to the client about it. That might be the point where you're having to do too much in mastering. And that, you know, that's going to depend on the attitude of the client, what the deadline is, all that kind of stuff. Some things it is easier to to actually fix in the mastering. Because let's say if I know that I need to put on an EQ and automate it minus 6 dB for this section, that takes me 30 seconds to do to send the song back to them to mix is going to delay the project by two days. Yeah, that's a great point. So. No, absolutely. absolutely. No, I, I completely <laughs> agree. Um, and it's, yeah, I think to one of the, in terms of figuring out whether or not you should be going back to them, it almost depends on the success of what you're trying to do. You know, yes. if you manage to achieve exactly what you wanted by automating in the mastering session, great, move on. If you're trying it and it's kind of helping, but it's not quite getting there, then that's almost certainly a key that the mix would be a better place to fix it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and you can do, I mean, back in the day before the denoising tools had reached the level of sophistication that they have now, I would roll high end in and out by hand. You know, if you had a live gig, you know, with lots of noise on stage mics, you know, plenty of hiss in the quiet sections, you could roll out some of the high end or the high shelf, say. The change in the style of the material stopped people from noticing that actually the EQ had changed, but you could just make the hiss less noticeable and then bring it back in. And, you know, that was all done by hand, you know, the the old fashioned way. And then as time went on, I started automating it and doing it with edits and all the rest of it. But it's all, they're all the same strategies. Um, and yeah, at the end of the day, it's whatever works. Um, I think I probably use level automation either in one album in 10 or on one or two songs out of a 10 or 12 song album. It's that kind of ratio. Oh, it's not something I do on everything. Um, and in terms of automating EQ, it's probably once in a blue moon. But when that's what it needs, that can be the magic ingredient that, you know, the clients are completely amazed. And are like, how did you do that? And you kind of smile knowingly and feel smug. <laughs> I feel like for a long time, I was almost forgetting that I could automate in the mastering. Or I was thinking that it would be more complicated than it really is. Um, so once I realized that, I got into the habit of considering automation, I could do a lot more with it. It's funny not because you I'm need to, kind always. of similar, but for no, not that you need to. And, and yeah, yeah. Again, it's it's the kind of thing where you know it's, you do it if necessary, but you don't go in assuming you're going to do it. But sure. for me, it was slightly different in the sense that actually it was much more of a pain to do with the tools that I was using back, you know, when I started out. The first DAW that I used, there wasn't any automation on the EQ. So the the way that I would achieve it then is I would actually split the song across two tracks. So not only would be there and be an edit, but it would be an edit from one stream of the DAW, one channel in the mixer to another. And I would have different EQ settings on those two channels. And it might hop back in between back and forth between those as as the song progressed um these days you can i can drop you know different settings onto different clips in the timeline and edit between those or but i still actually tend to shy i'm not a huge automation systems for me are just really really fiddly it's like level automations where you just click and drag to move the the, the volume up and down that's that's kind of simple i guess i'm a simple character at heart I, that's you know that's that's straightforward enough that i can at the point where i have to start unfolding automation streams and getting in there and figuring out which controller i need and which parameter and dragging things around with crosshairs at that point i'm kind of looking for a simpler way to do it um i don't that doesn't necessarily have to apply to anybody else in the world i'm just being honest <laughs> um, 
Yeah, any of the automation moves that I do aren't in real time. It's all it's all drawn in. That's with, uh, mostly true for me. I know exactly what I want to do. I'll audition a few things, and then I'll either go into latch preview mode in Reaper, uh, which is, is too complicated to explain. To really explain here, but um, it's just no, a I'm, very come, come it's a super easy way of, of automating when you're doing selection based things. Where this is the settings for before, this is the settings for within time selection, and it goes back to the old version. And for and I'm not intimidated by EQ doing anything at all with uh, automation using that mode. It's great. Yeah, that's nice. That sounds like um, something that maybe. Reaper, or maybe I just haven't investigated the settings or the the, the capabilities of of Wavelab sufficiently. Yeah. Um, in fact, it. But I, I mean, I've just been doing some mixing recently in Logic, and I feel the same way. It's just maybe it's just me. I'm just old fashioned that way. Um. So we've got songs with optimized settings, optimized levels, optimized processing. Unless you think of anything I've forgotten, I'm at the point where I'm going to talk about gaps and fades. I would like to know about uh, what you do if the artist doesn't know the song order at the start of the project. Do you send them away until they figure it out, or do you start the project? No, I start the project. I get their best guess, or I pick my own order, although that can be dangerous because I then fall in love with my running order, and if they don't like it or choose something different, it makes me annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I take their best guess and I, I do what I can. Same thing if they're kind of, you know, if I'm getting a project piecemeal, if they're kind of sending songs along as and when they can. Um, the nice thing these days is that, um, I mean, even if I'm using outboard gear, it's it's pretty, it tends to be, for the outboard, it'll tend to be one setting for a song. So a recall is pretty straightforward. And most of what I do is in the box, so everything is recalled and, and adjustments are easy. Back in the days when everything was going out in real time through a ton of processing and back in and being recorded back in, that was much more of a of a pain, um, you know. And those are the kind of projects where you start tearing your hair out, where they came back with their third set of alterations and you tweak the running order and go, well, now that doesn't sound right going from that song into that, and I'm going to have to redo this. Um, I, I think gaps and fades are the probably the most time consuming part of it or the part where we go back and forth on uh, with the artist uh just fine tuning uh a few milliseconds at a time <laughs> sometimes that's interesting okay well so let me give you my rules of thumb and you can see mm -hmm. whether that helps sure um so i mean f fades are fades are one, the, one of the reasons that i use wavelab wavelab has a ton of different fade shapes um which I really like. Studio One by Presonus that I played with when I was doing the Home Mastering Masterclass is really nice for mastering. has has a nice workflow, has DDP export, a ton of other features, but it just doesn't have enough fade shapes to, to satisfy me. So um, I'm pretty picky about fades. Um, they're a matter of taste. I don't think I have any particular hints and tips except to say that they're important and to tell people to wait until the last possible moment to do them. Because if you do your fade in the mix and then in the context of the master, you wish that actually the cymbals rang on a little bit longer or that bass note didn't cut off there or whatever it is, you know, it's it's too late and it's more hassle to, to go back and fix that. So leave plenty of intro and outro time also because that makes denoising easier. You know, if somebody needs to take a noise sample and reduce something, having a bit of air before and after the song is helpful for that. So you need lots of flexibility. I'm a big fan of the, uh, I guess it's the S-shaped curve, um, where gently the gain starts to reduce at the beginning of the fade, then it accelerates, and then it decelerates at the end. Um, that just kind of naturally emulates. I mean, I for years I was doing fades by hand, um, and that's the kind of, you know, you ease back, ease back, increase, 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 and then slow down for the end of the fade. That's just kind of the what feels right to me. Um, Although another nice fade shape is, I think it's the either the sine or the cosine kind of shape where it rolls off gradually and then goes down linearly. And and of course, it depends the, the shape of whatever fade, if there was a fade, is under there in the first place. Um, but um, in terms of gaps, uh, I have two rules of thumb that people can try. 
Uh, the first one is two seconds, which sounds ridiculous, but you would be amazed how often two seconds between the point where you feel a song has ended and the next one should begin is about right. The other rule of thumb is two bars at the outgoing tempo. So you're counting along in time with the song that you're playing out of. You get to the point where you feel like okay, it's finished and then you count two bars at the same tempo and then you bring in the next song. Um, and although I agree doing fades and gaps always takes me longer than I think, it's still, after all these years, I kind of have this budget of time that I've allowed to do a project in my head and the end of it always takes me longer than I expect um, just because it takes time to think about and get right. But once I've got what I think is right, usually the client only wants one or two tweaks, if any, um, for me and probably not agonising about milliseconds. I mean, have you? do either of those ideas ring any bells with you or are you kind of shooting in the dark with gaps? I do about, uh, I think about two bars and I'm tapping along for a couple bars before the end of the song. I'm just, you know, tapping my finger on the, the desk to mm -hmm. make sure that I'm following the tempo and I'll wait until um, it's probably 16 beats and then I'll drop a marker there and I'll, I'll ripple edit everything that comes after so that uh, the, the first hit of the next song starts there. Um, but things get weird, especially if they want some sort of pre-roll for the song, or if these are two ambient songs where there's not really a tempo or there's, you know, it's, it's sort of like ambient things fading into each other. Uh, it, it could be a little bit tricky and, and that's the, the one project that I'm thinking of, the majority of the changes where we, I think we did less than five different versions of the mastering or revisions and like four of those would have been tweaking the fades or the the timing <laughs> so it's like almost no it, changes for the actual sound of the album right uh, i mean it definitely gets gets harder when you don't have a clear beginning and end to a song you know if you have a kind of bang the song's over boom you're into the next one that's easy as soon as you get into the territory of fades it's like well at which point do i think that it's kind of feel that it's finished do i have to wait for it to disappear completely um, and you know that's where things start getting creative because then you can maybe get into doing crossfades between songs and having something come in before the other thing has completely disappeared and stuff so I really enjoy that process the other thing while I think about it that I really enjoy about this part of the the mastering process is because I do it last I do all the sound work first um, then I put the songs to do the, the tops and tails the fades um, and then I do the gaps and then previewing the gaps, just listening to, you know, 20, 30 seconds of the song play out and then the next song come in. That's where suddenly you hear that it's turned into an album as opposed to a collection of songs, because you suddenly you hear that context kind of most clearly. Um, and I, I, I always enjoy that, especially if it's been a bit of a long winded thing or it's, you know, one of those tough compilation albums or whatever. Quite often you kind of get to the end and you think, well, I did my best, but I, I think maybe I just lost the plot there for a while. I don't know whether this is going to work. And then you come to do the the tops and tails and the gaps and you think ah oh, no it's 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 all good i you know <laughs> i can still do this um it still works um so but yeah absolutely it, it gets harder with this kind of subjective stuff of crossfades or ambient stuff you know or when people want sound effects in between things yeah if there's uh, a long intro before the actual music starts it can be a lot trickier where the the file needs to start at a certain time, but also musically it needs to flow between or from the last song. So, you know, it, it may not be a, uh, eight beats or two bars or two seconds. It, it has to be like, you know, 45 seconds, but still makes sense musically. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and of course but, there are always, uh, there are always times where you have to break the rules, you know, um, you, you do your best guess and let the, the, the client tell you if it's right or wrong. And, and don't get too attached strategy. about it. Yeah, don't get, another strategy, though, is to just turn the volume down a bit and start doing something else and just, let's just let it play. You know, start it in the middle of a song and don't really listen to it. You know, check some email or, I don't know, go on Facebook, whatever. Do something that kind of distracts you a bit. Um, if the gap is right, 
it'll play through and you won't really notice that the new song has come in. But if the gap is wrong, chances are you'll notice. You'll kind of go, oh, what was that? Um, and that can be another way of kind of checking what you've just done. It can make all the difference. It, it, for me, it's almost the most important part of, of the mastering, the album mastering process, making sure that that is perfect. And I'll, I will spend an hour just on that sometimes. <laughs> A little exaggeration, but, but definitely listening to the same 30 seconds 15 times until you're sure you've got it right. I, yeah, I can easily spend half an hour to an hour doing the gaps. I, I completely agree about that. I probably don't listen to them 15 times, but um, yeah, it's, and it is, I mean, I won't say, I think for me, level followed by EQ are the two most important things about a master, but you, you kind of take those for granted. And what's amazing is how significant something as simple as the gaps can be, even if you've got those things right, you know, it, it can make or break um, an album or certainly a moment on an album um, getting that right and it's so satisfying when you do get it right um anybody who's listening to this podcast who's kind of not really into mastering will be think we sound like complete lunatics at this point but anybody who's <laughs> actually kind of done this stuff and and you know got their teeth into a master i'm sure will have kind of had that that sort of yes moment it's like you know when you really nail a solo or whatever it's uh, it's it's a, it's a great moment which seems like a good place to stop unless Anything else has occurred to you that you think I need to talk about? Well, my timer's going off, so uh, I don't have any time anyways. No, but uh, <laughs> everything I've written down uh, uh, in here as we were talking about it is stuff that we've covered now, and I don't disagree with you about any of this stuff. <laughs> I'm excited to to try out uh, that uh, Nova EQ. I've been putting it off for so yeah, long, it's... But, but it's I am. Um, I've heard it's great. I don't think. I don't think I'm fooling. I, I, I haven't kind of done any sort of objective A/B comparisons. I just kind of tried it and thought, oh, I really like this. So yeah, I, I think it's. I think it's really good. It's. Um, it's very nice. Fantastic. Well, um, I hope that was useful to you guys listening. If not, send us some questions. Let us know. Um, the question and answer session we did in the last episode seems to have been really popular so we'll definitely do another one of those sometime so uh, feel free to keep your questions coming in and if i don't reply to you i apologize but i do read all your emails and i do love to hear from you guys thank you john for helping me out with this episode and for mixing and mastering it although you haven't done that yet of course my pleasure everybody should check out john's website reaperblog.net if you haven't already uh, my site is productionadvice.co.uk. We're both on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere. Uh, the music, as always, was by Kaylee Law. There is a link on themasteringshow.com where you can check him out uh, and also sign up for our email list to be notified of new episodes and any other cool stuff that we may have going on. So all I have to say now is thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.